Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we look at advances in genetic testing that have provided new possibilities for diagnosing rare genetic diseases. In general, what we mean is that there's a change in the DNA that resulted in this disease, and frequently it's inherited from either one parent or both parents. Plus, we discuss the newest USDA dietary guidelines. Number one was follow a healthy eating pattern across the lifespan. This is kind of a change. Instead of looking at individual nutrients, they're looking at a healthy eating pattern. And the latest on recommendations for adult immunizations. Relatively few vaccines recommended by age for adults, but there are lots of different vaccines recommended by different medical illnesses or conditions. We'll get our checkup from the neck up, and we'll hear a piece from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we examine the new USDA dietary guidelines and the controversy surrounding them. Plus, the newest recommended immunizations for adults and what shots you need to get. But first, the role of genetics in rare diseases. Rare genetic diseases are just that, rare. But they can cause great hardship and confusion for the patients and the specialists who attempt to help them. And understanding these diseases has been outside of our grasp until quite recently. Here with more on all of this and what can be done when you have a rare genetic disease is Dr. Joan Pellegrino. She's Associate Professor of Pediatrics and the Director of the Inherited Metabolic Diseases Specialty Clinic Center at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Pellegrino. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So it sounds like, first of all, let's start out by just helping us understand when we say a rare disease, what's the definition of a rare disease? So a rare disease is really a disease that's just not seen that often. So from a genetic standpoint, we would consider somebody with a disease of an incidence of, say, one out of 5,000. That would be kind of a common rare disease for us. So uh, I would say rare diseases could be up to one in a million. And what has been the problem in terms of treatments for people with rare diseases? I mean, I know that I read somewhere that there was the Orphan Drug Act, for example, of 1983, tried to provide incentives for drug companies to develop treatments for people even when there were so few out there. So what exactly does that say about, you know, the opportunity for treatment for people with rare diseases? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. The first part is you have to get diagnosed with a rare disease, and because they're rare, not all the every physician or provider would even be aware of the disease. So it takes a while to actually get to the diagnosis. And then once you get to the diagnosis, it may be that there's very little research that's been done or opportunities for um, therapies like medications because it's um, such a small number of people that it's just not profitable for insur- for um, pharmaceutical companies to develop medications for So this. basically what you're saying is you're really kind of out there in left field, literally. Yes, but I would say with the advent of the Internet, um, that's really been a big push for research and advocacy for these families because they can, uh, you know, individually one person just has a small voice, but when you have a group of people with the same disease, they can start lobbying for other efforts. So when we say these diseases are rare genetic diseases, does that mean that they are inherited from their family or is it something that takes place in the process of them of them being formed, so to speak? It could be either. It depends on the disease um, and the inheritance pattern of the disease. But in general, what we mean is that there's a change in the DNA that resulted in this disease. And frequently, it's inherited from either one parent or both parents. But there certainly are diseases in which the DNA change occurred in the egg or the sperm that went to form the embryo. So up until recently, these rare genetic diseases really were just for people who were clinically looking at them, a complex of symptoms that there was no explanation for. 
But of late, something changed, and that had to do with the kind of testing and genetic analysis that could be done. Tell us about what that is. Right, so for many years we defined genetic syndromes as just a constellation of features. So we'd say we see certain physical features in a group of people, they all seem to have the same medical problems, and we would call it a certain syndrome and give it a name. Um, then, uh, back in actually the late 1990s, early 2000, the Human Genome Project came around, and that really helped to define, kind of give us a roadmap of where the genes are, what, how many genes were there, because we didn't even know how many there were. And so that really spearheaded a lot of genetic um, diagnoses and research and development. And so now we're at the point where we can actually send off testing for specific diseases. So we really have two options if we see somebody and we can define one of those clinical symptoms where we say we've seen these features before, we've seen these medical problems, and it's such and such syndrome we may now be able to send testing for that specific syndrome, if that's a syndrome that's had a lot of research. So what is this term, next generation sequencing? What is it and what does it mean exactly? What does it do? So next generation sequencing is a way for us to actually read the genetic code for specific genes and to see in that way that we can make a diagnosis. Because if you have a mutation or a change in a specific gene, then we can actually give a name to what your syndrome is. So you can identify and, and basically isolate a specific pattern of change within the genes right. and give it a name and therefore actually find others with like issues. And they often have the similar kinds of symptoms that you're finding. Yeah, and, and that's helpful when you're talking about research and say pharmaceutical medications, things like that. Because if you can define a bigger population, um, there's a greater chance that more somebody will be interested in, in helping to develop medications down the road for these diseases. So it, that's, that's an interesting point because that's what the first question I would have is, so what's the result of this kind of finding or capability? In other words, it strikes me it can be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it obviously raises our knowledge level. It gives us the opportunity to perhaps um, know or develop treatment, um, targeted treatments for ha perhaps, or more or better targeted treatments rather than just treating symptoms, that kind of thing. But also, doesn't it also perhaps um, give information that we might not necessarily want to know? If, for example, it was a disease that had a, a very poor prognosis or outcome, we might not want to know that this is our this is our indelible future. Right. So that really depends on why you're doing the genetic test and what kind of genetic test you're doing. So if you yourself or you have a child who has multiple issues and you've been looking and looking for an answer for what their issues are, um, and then you send off a genetic test, that may be helpful in that you've, you know, for one, stopped this diagnostic odyssey, that they've already had a lot of testing done that hasn't led to the answers. So now they feel like, okay, we have an answer. Um, we know what the disease is. So then the question is, well, what do we know about the disease? Are there other people out there with the disease? Which the, what is the natural history of this disease and what can we do about it? So we certainly have some times where we've sent off testing and been surprised with the um, diagnosis that we got back that it wasn't what we were expecting. Um, we have other times where it confirmed what we were expecting and maybe it was a disease we knew a lot about. Um, but, but so, the yeah, so some parents actually are once, if we get one of these where we don't know that much about the disease, on the one hand, they're happy they have an answer, and then on the second hand, they're disappointed. Because? Because they don't really have anywhere to go with this. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no specific treatment for their disease, and they um, feel like everything's now being blamed on that disease. Any issue that comes up with the child, they say, oh, it must be because of this. And so some parents are really not that happy once they've gotten a diagnosis. That's very interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with geneticist Dr. Joan Pellegrino. And we're talking about rare genetic diseases and what to do kind of if you have one. Well, I guess the question is recently you've been involved in diagnosing a, a particular case, a young, young woman. Tell us about that story. 
What, what exactly took place? This was a young teenager? Yes, and like many other patients that have come to see us, uh, she had had a lot of testing, both genetic testing and other kind of medical testing, trying to make a diagnosis. Um, and the family was frustrated because they couldn't um, get an answer. And they had done really all of the genetic testing that was available at the time. And we encourage our patients to come back every couple of years if we haven't figured it out because the field of genetics is moving so quickly that we have new tests that are being developed all the time. So she presented to us now, and we had the availability of a new genetic test called whole exome sequencing. So this is like the next generation sequencing. Um, Sometimes when you do genetic testing, you're looking for a single gene because you think you know what it is. Sometimes you don't know exactly what it is, but you have an idea it's a group of diseases. And so you can do what we call panel testing, where you're saying, looking at a whole bunch of maybe 50 diseases that all have similar presentation. With whole exome sequencing, you can't even, you've gotten to the point where you can't even narrow it down to a panel. And so you're just basically screening the whole genome. Um, And so you're looking at thousands of genes, trying to determine if there's any change in the gene. And if so, then we have to figure out, does that change even fit with the clinical features? Is this a gene that's been previously reported in other people? Is it a candidate gene, which means it's a gene where we think it might be causing some of the symptoms, but it's in fact hasn't been reported with human disease before. <laughs> um, it's so, pretty new territory. <laughs> yes, and, and also in part of the whole exome sequencing in our clinic, we're doing a lot of pediatric patients. So we send testing on the patient and their parents. And sometimes we can find um, uh, changes in genes that have nothing to do with the individual with the symptoms. And we call those incidental findings, that we're finding a change in a gene that's clinically important, but has nothing to do with the question we're being asked. For example, a cancer gene. And so then we have to go through counseling up front with the, say, parents, if we found out that they had a cancer gene, would they want to know that? Because that has nothing to do with why we're seeing the child, um, but it could have implications for their general health. I think that's a very important question, and a question that comes up all the time when we're talking about once the human genome was mapped, was this whole idea of would you want to know, if you could know, at what point would you want to know? Should we be screening all infants for genetic abnormalities at birth? irrespective of any symptomatology. And the whole question is, you know, is this, a, is this a Pandora's box? Are we opening, you know, a whole area of concern and anxiety and without, in some cases, out and without any treatment or any way of intervening? So I'm sure that as a gen- geneticist, you face those kinds of ethical dilemmas all the time. Yes, we do. And I would say for our whole exome sequencing, there's Um, a lot of wonderful things that have happened, but we also have those same questions about who are we sending the testing on and should we be doing it in, uh, should we be testing, say, for adult onset diseases in children? So with this young person that we just described, one specific example, what was the outcome? Was it helpful in her case when you found that she had some kind of a rare genetic disease? What was the, what transpired? For this particular case, it was confusing the outcome because we were able to um, find a change in a gene, but she didn't have a lot of the features that we typically see in that gene. Um, But that was really the only genetic diagnosis we made. Um, The things that were good about it is that there are um, some potential for the mom and the family to connect with other families. Uh, since they reported this in a newspaper, uh, they were able to find some other families in the United States. They also have found a re- somebody else who's interested in research. So these kinds of things, when the parents get together or the adults get together, it can really s- spur additional research and help with the sort of discovery, help you to define the symptoms of the disease. The other important thing is that when we uh, made a diagnosis of a disease, we're thinking about all the things that have um, been previously reported. And what we're finding as we're discovering more and more people with genetic diseases is that there's a lot of variability. So sometimes things are more mild or more severe than we would have anticipated. And occasionally we're surprised with when we get a diagnosis and we think, gee, that's not really what I would have thought. 
would have presented this way. It sounds like at the er we're in the kind of early infancy of all of this genetic analysis and understanding that sometimes things that you find genetically having changed don't necessarily be aren't necessarily expressed clinically in a certain way and vice versa. I mean some things that are cl clinical symptoms don't necessarily have a one-to-one -one ratio or one-to-one -one relationship. So we're kind of new at all of this, and that raises again the specter and the question of how much warning, how much should we be telling people, oh, you have the gene for X, with it, which is a potentially deadly life-threatening disease. Because sometimes you can have that gene and it not necessarily show up as a problem. But clearly, what you're doing is of crucial importance to all of our health and well-being going forward. So I want to thank you so much for coming oh, in and sharing you. your whole perspective with us. My guest has been Dr. Joan Pellegrino. She's Associate Professor of Pediatrics and the Director of the Inherited Metabolic Diseases Specialty Center at Upstate Medical University. up next, the new USDA Dietary Guidelines and what you need to know. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Every five years, the USDA puts forth its dietary guidelines that then play an important role in shaping Americans' eating habits. Here to help us navigate this newest set of recommendations is Maria Erdman, registered dietitian nutritionist and certified specialist in oncology nutrition at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Maria. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So this new 2015 revision contains, from what I see, a few very radical ideas. I mean, one thing that struck me is that they removed the recommendations to limit the intake of cholesterol-rich foods, and they've made some reference to coffee as potentially being a part of a healthy diet. And we're going to get to that in a minute, but help us understand when we say got these guidelines, what exactly are they? So the food guidelines, the dietary guidelines from, are from the United States Department of Agriculture and the Department of Health and Human Services. There's actually a bill saying that these two departments have to come together and make dietary recommendations for Americans to try to improve Americans' health through diet. But those guidelines, which you're going to go through for us in a few minutes, are not really for the average citizen to take and use as an everyday kind of um, plan for their diet, are they? Exactly, they're really made for professionals to use. They're used by people who are planning federal food nutrition um, health policies and programs for people who need to make um, food decisions for school lunch programs and things like that, and for educators such as myself to know what the recommendations are. So they're more kind of global principles of nutrition. Yes. Well, let's get to what they are first, and then we'll go from there and drill down to the detail in terms of what you then can take away. What are the takeaways? Okay. So the guidelines, there are five guidelines that were put out to the public. Number one was follow a healthy eating pattern across the lifespan. This is kind of a change. Instead of looking at individual nutrients, they're looking at a healthy eating pattern. And the specifics of that are that a healthy eating pattern includes fruits, vegetables, protein, dairy, grains, and oils, and limits saturated fats, trans fats, added sugars, and sodium. So at one point, eating healthy wasn't just cutting, at one point they were saying cutting back on fat and calories, and when we've looked at what's happened with those recommendations subsequent to that, we're really fatter and less healthy than we were before. So they've turned to this whole notion of healthy pattern. Right, they're trying to look at a person's entire eating pattern throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout their life, as opposed to just specifics. What else? The next one is focus on variety, nutrient density, and the amount of food. So 
A variety of nutrient-dense foods from each food group is recommended, and that would mean, so an example of a meal would be chicken salad with a slice of bread and a glass of milk, some lettuce and celery would be included in there as vegetables, apples and grapes might be included in there as fruits, you know, in the chicken salad. Um, the protein part of that meal would be the chicken breast and some walnuts. The grains would be a whole grain bread, you would have the fat-free milk as your dairy, and for oil, you'd have mayonnaise, which goes with the chicken salad, or if you wanted to use an olive oil, that could be also the But oil. the concept here is to go all across the food groups right. and have an e not equal representation, I wanna talk about that too, but have a full representation of all the food groups at each meal. Well, and a variety and um, everything being nutrient dense, which we can talk about the meaning of that. Well, what is that? Nutrient density is when you eat a food that has plenty of vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, fiber. So you're not eating quote unquote empty calories, which is what has been defined as plain sugar. Um, something like white bread or cake doesn't have a lot of nutrition in it in each bite, whereas a vegetable does. How does that compare to the concept of a whole food? Well, whole foods tend to be nutrient dense. A so they're in their natural fruit. state as exactly. much as possible without preservatives and without being kind of altered in many, many ways. Not being refined so refined. much that you lose a lot of the nutrients. Is there another recommendation? Yes. Number three is limit calories from added sugars and saturated fats and reduce sodium intake. And the specifics of that are to reduce saturated fats such as are found in um, high fat animal products like ice cream sundae or, or cheeseburger would be two examples of saturated fats. Um, added sugars can be found in things like regular soda or a chocolate chip muffin, for example, that you would purchase at a, at a convenience store is very high in added sugars. Um, sodium can be found in things like pepperoni pizza or a cold cut sub. All of those processed meats have a lot of sodium. So those are things that you might want to lower. So just let's, let's try to do some takeaways from mm -hmm. these. Basically, the highlights. Are you supposed to be limiting your salt intake? I know that was something that you've alluded to here, but that was something that was highly stressed at one point, especially with people who had high blood pressure. What's the salt recommendation right now? The salt recommendation is to have about a teaspoon of salt. And that's across all of your eating? Yes. That seems very limited. It is. Um, it is. <laughs> but that's the, that's the recommendation. Mm -hmm. How about coffee? This changes I alluded to with coffee. What What's the new thinking on coffee? Well, coffee was never mentioned before, but recent research has shown that coffee does have some benefits to uh, reducing the risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And some recent research that didn't appear to make it into these guidelines has shown um, that it might help with um, Alzheimer's, and there actually is some some evidence showing that there's a benefit to reducing the risk of cancer also. Wow, coffee seems to fall into favor and disfavor depending <laughs> on what year you're talking about. How about things like dairy? I mean, what's the major recommendation there then? You, you want to have dairy, but does it have to be low fat? The recommendations are for skim or low fat dairy. Um, and there's some, controversy among some people as far as that because part of the changes that have been made here are for um, there was going there, there's some controversy in these guidelines as there always is um, and fat limits are a big part of that because there were some changes made from the scientific report to the guidelines. I want to get to that in just a minute because we're going to talk about how this whole thing was constructed and where the controversy emerges. But let me just run through a couple more. How about cholesterol? This whole issue of, at one point, cholesterol-rich foods. Eggs, for example, were on the no-no list for so long. Where are we at with cholesterol-rich foods today? Well, the limits in the 2010 guidelines said no more than 300 milligrams of cholesterol 
in your dietary intake per day. That's been completely dropped because there's still a limit on saturated fat, which is where cholesterol tends to come from as being 10% or less of your total calories. Um, but it has been seen in the research that's done that people are eating an average of 267 milligrams a day. So we seem to be keeping ourselves under that 300 milligrams. So they didn't feel the need to stress it. And a lot of research has shown that um, other things really play a, a greater um, influence on cholesterol levels in the blood, including heredity, physical activity, um, and, and things such as so that. So the idea of eating a food that has cholesterol is not as important as is avoiding food that has saturated fat, which then in your own body gets converted to cholesterol in your body and causes the plaque problems. I, it's not that close of a... Of a association. association. Um, trans fat was also shown to cause a lot of problems. Um, but yeah, it, it's not that close of an association, but it does help limit And saturated cholesterol. fat, they want you less than 10%. Yes. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with registered dietitian nutritionist Maria Erdman. We're talking about the newest USDA food guidelines. Go ahead, explain to us how this was all put together and what the process is and why there's controversy underlying some of it. Well, so there's actually a law that says that the Health and Human Services and USDA have to get together every five years and make new guidelines. So the first step of that is to get a group of scientists together to review all of the most recent literature and to grade it and decide what is really important and what we really need to say. So this is all very scientifically based. They have open meetings and they do allow input from the public um, and they do take that under advisement, but it's really about the science. So they end up writing a very long, very detailed report that most people would not want to read. Um, this then goes to a group of people that are going to write the dietary guidelines. And, and who are those people? These people, some are scientists, there are dietitians, there are doctors, but there are also policy writers, people who know how to take a recommendation and turn it into a policy, and people with communication expertise to make sure that it's understandable and clear. Um, so wherein lies the rub? Where's the problem there? Well, someplace in this translation, since it is a translation, people have disagreements about what this scientific evidence means versus how you're going to advise people to eat. And isn't there some concern that there's been an untoward um, influence of the food industry in terms of affecting these ultimate guidelines? Yes, the food industry is very strong. Um, there's, there's meat, there's dairy, there's eggs, and they obviously are all going to want to have some input into these guidelines as it affects what people buy um, for their food. So they do have They've got lobbyists, um, dietitians. When uh, you know, we received a lot of action alerts from our association saying, "Oh, contact your congressman because they're going to do this, they're going to do that." Um, so there's a lot more public awareness and input during the policy writing than there necessarily was during the scientific evidence-based part. And this is where sometimes, because Congress is involved in choosing policy makers, etc. in this process. Well, that says it all. <laughs> no, <can> need, be, <laughs> no need to say more. There can be a little bit of interference. When, yes. you have, uh, when you have high stakes lobbying and very important, you know, um, a lot of dollars on the line, there's going to be influence. So the controversy amongst dietitians then is that these, I mean, help us understand that, that these recommendations are perhaps not as um, I don't know what the word would be. Well, it, it wasn't a controversy among dietitians. The dietitians were trying to ask uh, their Congress people. There was a push by some to say that some of the evidence that was underlying some of the guidelines was not strong enough science. And in actuality, there's, um, they, they rate science as very strong, moderate, or, or not good. And some of the moderate recommendations really do underlie some of these guidelines. Um, it can be called moderate because they're not blind studies. It's very difficult to do nutrition studies with free-living adults. Um, so some of the data doesn't reach that excellent standard, 
but it's still what we have and should underlie these recommendations. But Congress was trying to say, or some, some people in Congress were trying to say, oh, that doesn't count, we shouldn't have that, and probably due to some of the food lobbying. So bottom line is, how should people approach, what's the takeaway, what do you tell your patients or clients? These guidelines over well are well done. Um, there is There are some issues, such as the fact that they kind of backtracked on processed meats, now including it as part of a healthy pattern, whereas in the 2010 guidelines, they actually said that it was associated with an increased risk of colorectal cancer and cardiovascular disease. So some people have problems with that. However, the individual out there should go to choosemyplate.gov where the USDA has set up a bunch of tools for people to use. They're very understandable, easy to use, and will really let you understand these guidelines and in translate a daily them, way. Translate yes. them into your daily life. Right. Thank you so much. My guest has been Maria Erdman. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified specialist in oncology nutrition at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up. Well, folks, my father came here from the hunger of a small farm in central Ireland. Despite the poverty, he loved the green fields and cows and the river Shannon and fish and ducks and geese and trees and birds. He immigrated for food and warmth. And so we kids would never know the cold and hunger of his early days. He worked in the New York City subways for 35 years, bought our small house near good schools. One cool late fall day when I was little, we stood on our front steps and heard honk, 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 and he pointed up, Richie, look, and told me about the geese in his young Irish sky. He and our mom lived lean, banking every extra nickel, dime, and penny. As he lay dying, he read The Little Engine That Could into a tape recorder for my baby son soon to be. And he asked me to look after my sister Deirdre, born with Down syndrome, my aging mother, and the money they'd saved for the family. Sure, Dad. Sure, sure. That was just shy of 30 years ago. My sister died two years ago. My mother died a year ago. And after a year of wills and courts and family discussions and forms and forms and forms and forms, a few days ago, I mailed the last form to send the remaining dollars their merry ways to the happy recipients. Then I bundled up and hopped on my bike for a long, long ride beside the Erie Canal, dug by all of our ancestors. Honk, honk, I looked up. Sure enough, honk, honk, my dad with some buddies giving me a flying ovation. <laughs> ovation, really. <laughs> You're welcome, Dad. Thank you for the chance for this long, hard, wonderful ride. And goodbye for now. I'm off for another ride. I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Up, what are the newest vaccines adults need to get to stay healthy? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. The 2016 adult immunization schedule contains several changes from past years. Well, here with more on what you need to know to be fully immunized is Dr. John Epling, Professor and Chair of Family Medicine and Professor of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Epling. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So the 2016 adult immunization schedule contains several changes from past years. I want to go through those with you. But before we do, help us understand what's the basis for this schedule? You know, why is it changed annually? Who makes these decisions? Help us understand that process. Yeah, as you said, it is it is changed annually to reflect the best evidence about the vaccines that are, that are recommended uh, by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, and I'll talk about those guys in a second. But um, and and it's done so that we keep abreast of the best current evidence about which vaccines are indicated and, and which vaccines can help prevent vaccine preventable disease. Um, so s- some amount of regular review is necessary, and the ACIP meets um, three times a year at least uh, to discuss new recommendations and to come up with with new recommendations for certain vaccines to review the evidence and figure out which ones are, are routinely recommended. Once a year, uh, the ACIP prints out a new schedule and and delivers that in a very coordinated fashion, uh, usually in February, around February 1st. The, um, and, and this schedule is important. Um, before this, this what's called this harmonized schedule uh, came out, and harmonization means that all the different specialty societies agree that this is the schedule that they will all use. Uh, before that came about, different depending on which doctor you saw, the immunizations might be recommended differently. And that was sort of a, that was not a great situation because patients would be confused, the doctors would be confused about which ones were recommended. And if you moved from one physician to another or one part of the country to another, there wasn't no standardization. Absolutely. And that, that doesn't make for good public health policy at all. So so this is a much better system. Um, I sit on the work group that, that develops the uh, adult immunization schedule and their representatives from all the different specialty societies uh, internal internal medicine, um, uh, geriatrics, uh, the PAs and nurse practitioners, all, all different uh, folks sit on that committee. Family physicians family, as well. Yes, I'm the family physician representative, and so this is the uh, this is the work group that ends up producing this adult recommendation schedule to try to make it uh, clear make it uh, understandable and applicable to all the different specialties. Now, is it different than what ha- takes place for the children's immunization schedule? Is it a completely different body no, that pro- reviews it? No, the ACIP produces both. We just kind of split the work into kids versus adults and, and have different committees to produce those schedules. And there's got to be some overlap, but generally it's it's different. Well, so the overlap gets to the indications based on age. So not every indication falls neatly within a certain age group over 18 right. or under 18. Um, and, and as we'll talk about some of the meningococcal recommendations, the HPV recommendations uh, cross that age group a little bit. So of necessity, the groups have to work together and communicate. How about something like flu? Like every year there's this all this kind of, you know, brouhaha about what flu, what the flu strains are and they have to meet and they have to determine what and then make the recommendations and get the development of the vaccines. Right. Is that part of this or separate yep, from? No, it's definitely part of it. it. It happens in one of the ACIP meetings that happen every, every or three times a year. Uh, they review the evidence about what flu strains are coming around the world. And I mean that literally, that, that we yep. look at, at flu incidents in China, Australia, um, and and predict uh, which flu strains are likely to hit the U.S. Um, as it comes around. And sometimes we're right about that, and sometimes we're wrong about that, frankly. Um, the best policy on a, on a sort of national level to get everybody immunized as much as we can is to make those recommendations for everybody. So every, the recommendation is for everybody without a solid contraindication to get an annual flu vaccine starting at age six months all the way uh, all the way up. That's pretty much a blanket recommendation. That's a blanket at this recommendation point. and then we do the ACIP does its best to figure out which which strains it's going to include in the next vaccine, et cetera. So basically one of the things I'd like to focus more on the adult and if, if it mm-hmm. reflects a little bit back on the overlapping you know, circumstances, we can talk about kids as well. But um, it also, this recommend, these recommendations also take into account different people's um, morbidity in the sense of whether they have other um, illnesses or other disease entities and what have you. Is that correct? That's one of the essential differences between the adult schedule and the child schedule. 
the adult schedule really, there, there are relatively few compared to the child schedule, relatively few vaccines recommended by age for adults, but there are lots of different vaccines recommended by different medical illnesses or conditions. Um, and so it's really important, and, and all that information is, is frankly somewhat confusing. The, the definition of when somebody would need uh, one of the pneumococcal vaccines versus one of the other pneumococcal vaccines depends really on the details of the condition that you have. Um, and not, and we now have two pneumococcal vaccines. Both of them are not necessarily recommended for the same conditions. So it's really important to talk with your doctor about it. And, and it's important to do that because unfortunately our adult immunization um, levels, our adult immunization rates in the United States are not very good. They're not. Uh, no, they, they far trail the uh, childhood immunization rates. Largely, I think when adults are presenting for uh, pre for preventive services, they're thinking about screenings like colonoscopy screenings and mammograms and those things, and they're not necessarily thinking about vaccinations. Um, the vaccinations are relatively sparse until you get to age 65 and or 60 and 65, and then a few more come. Um, it's difficult to remember an, a, every 10-year tetanus vaccine, so so we just don't have those reminders in the way same way that they're reminded to us in childhood. Um, we don't have schools that require them for entry, those type of things. So I think um, specifically talking with your healthcare provider about which adult immunizations are indicated for you both by age and by medical condition is the most important. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with preventive health expert Dr. John Epling. And we're talking about the new 2016 recommended adult vaccines. So let's get to basically what's new this year mm -hmm. and what is, you know, kind of pops out this year that's different. Um, given that there are changes every year, this is actually sort of a quiet year for changes. But uh, the biggest thing, there, there was a new pneumococcal vaccine released, the PCV13 vaccine. Uh, the trade name is for that is Prevnar. That's one of the trade names, but we'll use the PCV13. That's a pneumococcal vaccine. So pneumococcal vaccines are vaccines against a bacteria called Streptococcus pneumoniae. Um, which can cause not only pneumonia, we often refer to it as the pneumonia vaccine, but it's not just against pneumonia. It's against um, pneumonia plus uh, other invasive pneumococcal disease like sepsis, a, a blood-borne bacteria condition, uh, meningitis, those type of things. So it's an important vaccine for all sorts of illnesses. But there was one prior we to have, this. We have previously given the PPSV23, which is a hard one to say, but that is that is a type of vaccine that's... Um, that, that is aimed at sort of the, the coating of the bacterial wall. It doesn't, it's not as potent a vaccine as the PCV13 vaccine. The PPSV23 vaccine, or Pneumavax is what we, the trade name is, covers 23 different kinds of the bug, but it's not a very strong vaccine. Whereas the PCV13 is a much stronger vaccine, but it covers relatively fewer types of the bug. And what we found in a trial called the CAPITA trial is that if you combine those and, and give one and then the other, uh, we tend to be able to prevent these invasive pneumococcal infections. So uh, that's the rate. new recommendation right. to add this to the to the armamentarium to sort add Sort of as a booster if you want to think about it that way. So if you've already had the initial pneumovax and you get the Prevnar, you should be good. Yes. However, the recommended order of that uh, for people that are just turning 65, which is the indicated age to start this, is to get the PCV13 or Prevnar first, wait a year, and then get the PPSV23 or Pneumovax. That's the preferred recommendation. If you've already gotten the Pneumovax or PPSV23, you can then wait a year and get the PCV13, and that's okay. There's no there's no reason to worry no about that. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's best to go ahead and do that. Um, and so that's the, that's the preferred way to, to tackle that one. I want to get on to some of the others. So what, what else has changed? Something with the meningococcal vaccine? Yeah, so there's a new meningococcal vaccine, the meningococcal B vaccine. The one we have out now, which is uh, called the MEN-ACWY vaccine or the Menactra vaccine or MEN-immune is another uh, name for it. Those are tr traditionally given now at ages 11, 11 to 12, and a booster is given at age 16. And that's to prevent... Um, meningitis, a brain and spinal cord infection that's associated with sort of crowded settings like colleges, military barracks, those type of things, college dorms. Um, there is a, 
um, fully a third of meningi meningitis cases involve the bug meningococcal B, which is not included in the ACWI. Um, and so there was a new vaccine developed for that. That has received a less strong recommendation from the ACIP. There are two types of recommendations the ACIP gives. One is a general recommendation that everybody should have, and one is a permissive recommendation, which is you can have it, but it's not necessarily recommended for absolutely everybody. So, so the, which is it with the two? So the, meningico the, the meningococcal ACWY, the, 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 prior the, one. the prior one, is recommended for everybody. That's a general recommendation. The meninge B um, vaccine is recommended, is a permissive recommendation. You can give it for folks that you think would be at increased risk. So certainly if there's an outbreak or if they're at high risk for meningitis. I don't want to run out of time because mm -hmm. I have so many questions, but the bottom line here is that um, for most adults, just give us a quick thumbnail of what you would want adults to have in terms of immunizations. Okay, so just great. a quick laundry list. Sure. So uh, uh, first one is a Tdap vaccine. The tetanus, tetanus with the added pertussis vaccine is recommended one more time in your life if you've never had one. That's to protect against whooping cough, and we still have outbreaks. Of there that. have been outbreaks, right. And then after that, uh, a tetanus vaccine, TD uh, booster every 10 years. Uh, when you turn 60, you're eligible for zoster vaccine, shingles vaccine. And so talk to your doctor about that one. The way that's delivered is a little bit confusing. So talk to your, your uh, health care provider about that one. At age 65, um, the recommendation for PCV13 followed in a year by PPSV23. Those are the two pneumovax the or pneumonia ones. Right. Um, if you're a woman under the age of 26 and you haven't gotten all HPV vaccines, you want to go ahead and complete that series, and you can do that with the nine-valent vaccine that's relatively new now. It doesn't matter which form of the vaccine you get. Um, and then talk to your doctor if you have other medical problems to see if any additional va vaccinations are recommended. So bottom line is, are we losing immunities? Because they've been talking about certain outbreaks. I know that I've heard outbreaks, again, this is just in the common press, but that there are outbreaks of measles, there's outbreaks of mumps, even amongst college kids. Is it that we, that some of these, the initial immunity that we may have gotten either through, probably through vaccination, because I guess if you've had the disease, you have lifelong immunity. Is that correct? Well, there are a couple different ways to think about that. First of all, for measles, the important point is uh, most of those outbreaks are occur in unimmunized individuals. So okay. it's people that have declined immunization in the past. So the most important thing is to get the recommended vaccines. For others like pertussis, we do know that that, that some, some pneumococcal, a lot of the or several of the vaccines um, do, the immunity does wane over time. And that has to do with the type of vaccine that they are. And we're constantly looking at that data to figure out which ones we need to boost. Um, so I think I, I would expect changes about that. The, this is a growing field of research and we're looking at that very carefully. Well, it's all very, very important. And hopefully I think the bottom line is you should speak to your healthcare provider as an adult and make sure that you're fully immunized because Absolutely. there are preventable diseases out there that can be very life-threatening. Yes. Thank you so very much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. John Epling. He's the professor and chair of family medicine and professor of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Today I want to read a poem that may prove useful to you if you are visiting someone who has a serious illness. People always wonder what they should say, how they should say it. Rosie Garland is both a writer and a performer. She sings in a post-punk rock band and has just published her first novel with HarperCollins in the United Kingdom. Her poem is called Personal Questions. I would reference the NHS means the National Health Service in the poem. This poem pointedly reminds us that sometimes silence might be more appreciated than our idle curiosity. Personal Questions with regards for Diane Burns who wrote, sure, you can ask me a personal question. No, I'm not a smoker. No, I never have been. Yes, it's one that smokers get. No, I'm not a heavy drinker. No, I never have been. Yes, it's one that drinkers get. Yes, you can say it's unfair. No, 
I don't see it that way. No, this isn't a punk haircut. No, this isn't a perm. No, it wasn't this curly before. No, I don't want to wear a wig. Yes, I could get one on the NHS, a pretty one, a good one. No, I don't want to wear a scarf. Yes, I could get one on the NHS, a pretty one, a good one. No, I haven't tried multivitamins, or selenium, or coenzyme Q10, or folic acid, or beta carotene, or coffee enemas, or broccoli, or linseed, or the Gershon technique. Ah, so you have an aunt with cancer. Ah, your brother. Yes, it's the same as Michael Douglas. Yes, things have moved on since you were a boy. Yes, there's a better chance these days. Yes, it's amazing what they can do. Thanks for saying I look well. No, I don't feel it. No, I don't like it when you squeeze my hand, or hug me, or stroke my hair, and say it's soft as a baby's. Yes, these electric wheelchairs are useful. Ah, so you think they're brilliant. Ah, so you'd like one yourself to get about. No, I don't think I'm brave. Really, I don't see myself as brave. No, really. If you must, then. No, there's nothing you can do for me. No, there's nothing you can do. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we get the latest on the heroin epidemic sweeping the country, plus the real bottom line when it comes to organic foods, and we'll learn all about esophageal cancer. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <music>